The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. I'll sort of learn things differently, and uh, I get that a lot of people like sermons that tend to have some kind of impassioned narrative attached to it, and that might be the preferred way of learning some spiritual truths for even a majority of uh, people out there wanting to hear a sermon or something like that. Uh, there are s- just some things that I'm not sure you can entirely teach by way of impassioned narrative. You cannot teach computer programming and coding by way of impassioned narrative. You can't teach somebody how to play the piano without teaching them the scales and how to do it. So sometimes you kind of just have to go through the, the chunks one at a time of what something is. And so our lesson on the sacraments tonight is going to be a little bit like that. We have to see comprehensively what does the Bible say on a given topic. Now, sacraments. Uh, Sacrament, it's important, I think, to point out, that is one of those words that you don't actually use in the Bible. Uh, It's not a biblical word in the same sense that Trinity is not a word that you find in the Bible. And yet, it is a helpful man-made word for very clearly teaching a distinctly biblical concept, okay? Just like Trinity, sacrament functions the same way. Um, unfortunately, there, if we're going to be all completely honest and cards on the table about this, there's a significant amount of division in the Christian community when it comes to the practice and the teaching of baptism and Holy Communion. Uh, At the same time, I also want to acknowledge that for 2,000 years, for a lot of people, there have been uh, a a lot of overlap, I think some level of consensus in churches, regardless of theological tradition. So, for instance, uh, Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, and Reformed churches, by and large, have always taught that a sacrament was a ritual ceremony by which God's grace is communicated in an outwardly observable way to the participants. Okay, let me say that one more time so we're all on the same page with that general definition. Sacraments are ritual ceremonies where God communicates his grace in an outwardly observable way to the participants. Okay, so the power of God to us comes in his word and the Holy Spirit uses that word to operate on our hearts But in the sacraments, the Holy Spirit takes that word, connects it to a physical component in order to provide a spiritual blessing. My favorite way, uh, my favorite analogy to describe that aspect of the sacraments is a little analogy I refer to as the loving parent and the troubled child. Okay? A loving parent, I hope and pray, would tell their child every night when they tuck them into bed, I love you. Okay? And yet, there's some occasions where a child might be inclined to doubt whether or not the parent still loves them. You know, if they've disobeyed their parents' commands, they might be inclined to think, maybe I've done, maybe I've, I've messed up so royally this time that I've jeopardized my parents' love for me. At that point, in that moment, I think what a loving parent does is they not only tell the child, I love you, but they maybe embrace the child and give them a hug and say, I love you. Now, in that moment, when the parent is hugging the child, are they telling, are they giving a different love than the love that they shared with that child every other night when they tucked him into bed? No, it's the exact same love they've always had for that parent, uh, for that child. But on this day, it's being communicated differently. It's being communicated in a more tangible, 
personal, uh, physical kind of way. And that's the case with the sacraments, too. God who created us understands that we are people who, uh, he designed us as physical sensory creatures, and therefore we benefit from having his love communicated to us in ways that we can uh, process through our senses, too, through uh, sight and touch and taste. And that's what we find in the sacraments. Um, It would have been enough. It would have been enough for God simply to say, I love you, I accept you, I have forgiven you for all of your sins. But he goes even a step further and says, I want you to know how desperately I love you, accept you. Receive this physically and be assured of my tangible love for you in the sacraments. Okay. Uh, There's a lot of questions that we could pursue tonight. Anytime I teach lessons on baptism and communion, I get hundreds of great questions. Certain ones always uh, commonly come up. Uh, For instance, uh, why do we baptize little kids uh, when so many other churches out there don't do that? Why do we uh, practice this thing called close communion, where we invite certain people to come up and receive communion when so many other churches out there seemingly invite, uh, it's open communion, they invite little kids to come up, they invite people, whoever off the street to come up. Why do we do that differently? Why do Roman Catholics get seven sacraments and we only get, we get uh, two? You know, why, why should they get three and a half times as many sacraments as we get? How's that fair? Uh, there's lots of good questions, but I think there's one question that we have to answer tonight that is the question, the fundamental question that governs all the other questions, and it's simply this. Baptism and communion, are they primarily something in which we do them in response and obedience to God, or are they primarily something in which God the Holy Spirit comes down and works something in us? You understand the difference? That's the whole, everything, every other question is answered by that. Is it something we do in obedience to God, or are baptism and communion primarily something that God comes down and works something in us? If it is God coming down and working something in us, the appropriate word is a sacrament. They are sacraments. If baptism and communion are primarily something that we do uh, out of obedience to God, to show our love for God, then we would call that a sacrifice. And that's the question that I want to get to the bottom of tonight, okay? Because that answers all the other questions. We're going to look at two different texts, uh, texts specifically on baptism and, and Holy Communion, respectively, Titus 3 and 1 Corinthians 11. Those are going to be sort of our home base texts. And what I want you to see tonight is when we go through these, we're going to establish some points that baptism, when we get through the points of baptism and the points of Holy Communion, I want you to see how they overlap and work together and tell one singular truth about God uh, and how he communicates his grace to us. So first of all, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Here's our first lesson. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. Uh, that word for love there, kindness and love, it's, it's a Greek word. It's, just, it's the word where we get our word philanthropy. You understand what philanthropy is? Philanthropy is when you find somebody who's in need and you don't bless them because they're so deserving, but you bless them simply because you have compassion and mercy upon them. God shows philanthropy to us and he saves us. One of the things that I want you to see when you study the various passages on baptism is anytime you line up these passages, you have to note who is the subject, what is the verb, and who is the recipient of the action. Who's the agent, what's the action, who's the recipient? 
every single time you will find that the agent, the actor is God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, he. The action will always be something like saves, blesses, cleanses, renews, purifies. Uh, the, the recipient is always the one who's receiving it, us. It's a pure gospel message. Remember what the gospel is. The gospel is not good advice about how you should live your life. The gospel is good news about how Jesus lived his life for you and died for you. It's not advice, it's news. He saved us is the gospel proclamation here. And it's connected, this happens to be one of the, I would say, top five uh, clear proclamations of the gospel in all of scripture. And it just so happens to be painted in the words of baptism. He saved us how? Through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously. I've looked at no less than probably two dozen commentaries on this verse before, and almost every commentator, regardless of theological tradition, will tell you that this passage is probably a reference to baptism. The ones who say, you notice it doesn't actually use the word baptism, but the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he pours out on us generously. Very clearly, this seems to be the language of baptism. The couple of commentators that I've read uh, who say this, no, this isn't a reference to baptism, are those who have theological predispositions to say, no, baptism is something we do for God, not something that God works in us. And I'll be honest with you, I'd share those commentaries with you. Tell me, if you read through that, I'm not even sure they believe what they're writing at that moment. I think, feel like they're going out of their way to say, no, this doesn't represent or this isn't talking about baptism, when so very clearly anybody who reads it seems to say, yeah, this is baptism. God takes gospel promises, he attaches it to a physical element, and when we receive that physical element, we are united to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Why? So that having been justified by his grace, we, may, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You know what an heir is? An heir, H-E-I-R-S, does nothing for their inheritance. They don't do anything to earn it. You simply get it, you get blessing from another person simply by the relationship that you're in with them. So that when they die, their blessings get transmitted to you. It's the perfect word to describe our relationship to God and the blessings we receive from Jesus Christ because in the covenantal act of baptism, we are brought into the family of God. God is not a boss and we are not employees. We are children and God is our father because we are adopted into his family in baptism when he legally puts his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit directly on us. Okay? Now, this is just one passage in Scripture. Are we sure that the rest of the New Testament teaches baptism the exact same sort of way? Let me show you real quickly. Here's what's called, it's called systematic theology. We look through a bunch of passages and we say, hmm, they seem to be teaching one specific thing. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says, this water water of the flood at the time of Noah symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. This is not the removal of dirt from your body. It's a pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, you get a clear gospel statement. He saves you. It saves you. Baptism saves and cleanses and washes you. God is doing the action. Uh, Peter is, why does he use the, the reference to Noah's ark? If you remember back to that story, Noah and the great flood, God sends a flood 
uh, to wash away the wickedness of the world so that the wicked people of the world won't hurt the God-fearing people in the world. God saves Noah and his family by sending the flood to wash away the wickedness. And Peter is saying, that's an analogy of baptism. God washes away all the wickedness that could potentially hurt you by cleansing you of your sins in baptism. A clear gospel statement connected with water to Jesus' saving work. Romans 6, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When we are washed with the water, we get credit. We get attached to Jesus Christ so that everything he did counts for us and everything that we've done gets put on him. Why? So that we can be covenantally brought into the family of God. I personally think this next passage, Colossians 2, is one of the most underutilized to teach baptism in the Bible. Um, It talks about the Old Testament covenantal ceremony of circumcision. And here's what Paul is saying to the Colossians. He says, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, raised uh, with him uh, through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Here's what Paul's saying. In the Old Testament, for 2,000 years under the Abrahamic covenant, God brought everybody who converted both adults and little children, males, into the family, into the community of God by way of a covenant ceremony. Well, we're not under the old covenant. We're under a new covenant. But there still is this ceremony by which God brings you into the covenantal people, the family of God, the community of God. And that is the washing with water through the word in baptism. What's the teaching? God saves us. God saves us by grace. God saves us by connecting his promises of the gospel to something physical that unites us to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And in this process, he creates a covenant relationship by which we become eternal members of his family. With me so far? All right, that's baptism. I know we're running through a bunch of passages. I want you to see how everything that we say about baptism really applies now to communion as well. 1 Corinthians 11 is our home-based text. For, for what I received from the Lord Jesus, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice first, he makes a clear gospel statement. Take this, eat this, drink this, consume this. It's my body for you. It's my blood for you. I do this for you. Uh, He says that it's attached to a physical element. Very clearly, he says, take bread. And he broke it. He took the cup. And he gave it to them to drink. He attaches it to the physical element. And then he creates a covenantal relationship. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Is this what's consistently taught in the New Testament? So truth be told, we actually have four texts in the New Testament that talk directly about Holy Communion. It's the three times we see the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel. 
Then we have the Apostle Paul, the text that we just read, uh, him clearing up some false practices that they have with communion. That's actually in the second paragraph there. He says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment upon themselves. He's, he's anticipating there's a level of spiritual maturity attached to those who are communing. By the way, this makes perfect logical sense despite it not being as inclusive of a practice as our current culture might like. Our secular society would never dream of a pharmacist or a doctor handing out prescriptions, powerful medication to people, anybody, randomly, and just saying, come and take whatever medicine you want. Oh, you're sick? Come and, yeah, come on, take whatever you want. No, why? Because our secular world understands enough to say the exact same medication that is powerful enough to cure you of your illness is also so powerful that when you take it, it could actually make you more sick if you take it inappropriately, if you receive it in the wrong way. Now, if that's the case with secular medicine that heals the body, why on earth wouldn't that be the case when it comes to an even more powerful medicine, which is Jesus' own body and blood? Why does it not make sense that Jesus might attach, attach some kind of prescription or directions attached to it so that this same powerful thing uh, will heal you and not hurt you? Our practice of it makes perfect sense. I'll get to that in just a second. But again, is this consistently taught? Again, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, we read, While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Clear gospel statement. Take this, eat this, drink this, do this, for the forgiveness of your sins. He attaches the gospel promises to the physical elements. Jesus took bread and broke it. He took the cup, offered it to them, and they all drink. Mark says in chapter 14. And finally... It brings us into a covenantal ceremony. Luke 22, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. What is communion? God saves us. God saves us by grace, connecting us to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And this happens through a covenantal ceremony. In, in communion, it's not that enters us into the family of God, but in communion, it reaffirms that we are still in the family of God despite all the mistakes that we've made in our lives. Okay? What does this mean? I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, we've, had, we've said in, in prior weeks, I'm 100% thankful to God for the brothers and sisters in Christ that I have that go beyond the walls of St. Marcus. I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, I'm also thankful for the believers beyond our church, beyond our church body, and believers around the world, okay? Um, whenever we confess our creeds, when we say the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, you know what we're saying? We're acknowledging that God's children exist in many churches and church bodies around the world, everybody who professes Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Not only are we acknowledging that, but we're expressing a certain level of gratitude for that. So, I do want to say to you, if anybody has ever presented denominationalism to you in a way that is kind of shamefully self-righteous or elitist, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I've ever done that. I'm sorry if anybody else has ever done that to you. 
And yet, what we don't apologize for is believing that there's a right teaching. And one of the things that I do tend to get a little bit fired up about sometimes is when I hear other Christian leaders or churches teach baptism and communion as though they are primarily something that we do for God. What I'd simply ask is that you look through the passages like we're doing here tonight and say, do these passages about baptism and communion, do they seem to be communicating the truth of salvation to me? And in every case, you will say, yes. Let me ask you another question. When is our salvation ever about what we do for God? Never. Then why on earth would a ritual ceremony communicating God's grace to us be primarily something about what we do? It wouldn't. It's about what God does for us. You've heard me define sin before sometimes as sin is man substituting himself for God. Uh, mankind taking credit for what God alone uh, can do. Um, when it comes to baptism and communion, if you or I have ever sort of kind of taken credit for the blessings that are going on there in some level of sinful spiritual pride, that's something we need to turn back and turn away from. But in the same way that, that, that sin is mankind substituting himself for God, salvation is always God substituting himself for mankind. And if we've had sort of a misunderstanding or mispractice of the Lord's Supper, if we've ever taken it inappropriately, if we've ever taken it unwittingly or something like that before, fortunately, God's grace is so overflowing that it it overcomes and overflows beyond any of that. His blood drowns out any sins against that as well. God saved us. God saved us by grace. He saved us by connecting us to the saving work of Jesus Christ, which he even does through physical ways so that we can have his love to us communicated in a tangible, physical, and personal kind of way in the sacraments. Now, if we see that the sacraments are primarily God's doing, not our own doing, I said that governs all the other smaller questions that we're not unimportant, but questions underneath that about baptism and communion. For instance, let me just give you two. If baptism is the moment, uh, a time at which I profess my allegiance to God, and that's what it's primarily about, then I could see that you might not say a little kid should do that, because who knows if they really mean it uh, when they're so young. Furthermore, uh, if you're going to use that logic, if you'd push it to its logical conclusion, I think you could argue the case, well, what if somebody is is deeply mentally handicapped? Are they able to articulate in their right mind whether or not they should be baptized? On the other hand, if baptism is a ceremony of God's grace by which we are welcomed into the believing community and it's entirely his doing and not ours, then I have no good reason why a child would not be blessed by that in the same way that an adult would. Furthermore, Jesus says little things like, let the little children come to me. We see evidence of children having faith in Scripture. And finally, we have an entire Old Testament's precedent worth of God bringing people into a covenantal community by way of a ceremony where parents made decisions for their children to do it, the ceremony of circumcision. God has operated like this throughout history Let's not say that he can't operate this way today. God is doing something for us. What about communion? If communion, Holy Communion, is uh, simply us remembering who Jesus is and what he did for us, if that's all it is, 
then I can see why you'd invite little children to come up to that. I can see why you might invite people just off the street to come up and take Holy Communion because it would be good for everybody to remember who Jesus is and what he did for us, right? On the other hand, if it's a covenantal ceremony in which Jesus says that he is supernaturally pleasant in some kind of uh, mysterious way and he attaches another, uh, a, another promise to that, that if somebody takes it in an unworthy kind of way, they could actually be doing it to their detriment. Remember what I said about somebody who takes medication uh, in the wrong way, it actually could be their detriment, not to their blessing. If Jesus offers that warning attached to it, then it makes some sense to me that we would want to know that people know what it is that they're taking before they would fully come up and commune with us. I don't see how that's inconsistent with love or the gospel at all. Baptism and communion are primarily the Holy Spirit's work and therefore they're sacraments, not sacrifices. These acts are God's work which is perfectly consistent with everything else we read about our salvation. Not only is our forgiveness and our salvation completely done by Christ alone, but our faith is planted and strengthened entirely by the Holy Spirit alone. We are simply beggars who come with our hands out to God. Uh, one of my favorite analogies uh, to this, because I always I wrestled with this for a long time, but aren't we doing something? Aren't we the ones that come up and we have to take it and we have to eat it and we have to drink it? And isn't that our doing? And... Uh, Probably a theologian, a Lutheran theologian that sort of flies under the radar, but wrote a great little book called Law and Gospel. His name is C.F.W. Walther. Uh, he explained this to me in a way that uh, I'll never forget. He said, look, uh, when God commands you to receive his grace, let's say the grace in Holy Communion, it's kind of like you inviting a homeless, starving beggar off the street to come into your dinner table and eat with you. Come out from the cold, come in and find some nourishment. Uh, is the homeless person really doing anything at that point? Well, I suppose in one sense you could say so. But who is equipping the blessing that's attached there? It's the one who graciously prepared the meal. It's the one who graciously made the invitation to come in and get it. It's God's doing at the table, not ours. Um, as you come to the table here this evening, by the way, anytime we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every single thing that we do in worship is leading up to that moment. What I want you to get at the table this evening is something that you cannot get in a podcast or a download or a live stream. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I want you to naturally but supernaturally consume the very cost of your own salvation, Jesus' body and blood given for you on the cross. And he actually places it in your mouth and says, if there was any doubt that what I did on the cross was specifically for you, I want you to consume the price of your salvation. I want you to hold the receipt that lets you into heaven eternally. Uh, you're part of his family. And there's nothing that you can do to mess that up. Uh, because it was never about what you did. And the sacraments teach us, it's never about what you do. It's always about what he does for you. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, our natural self constantly wants to be turned inward upon ourselves. We constantly want to take credit for the good things that we have. But our forgiveness, our salvation, our faith, and even the works that we do, which are prepared in advance by you, are all your doing. We're reminded of that tonight when we celebrate the supper. 
this is your body, this is your blood, everything good we have comes from you, and nobody can ever take that away from us, and we can never mess it up because it was never about us, it's always about you. Help us to remember that tonight. Jesus, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.